Good morning. Welcome to 2016. Uh, we have a handout being passed out here. Um, while Christopher's doing that, let me introduce what we're going to be going through the next couple of months. We have, at the, if you recall back to the beginning of 2015, uh, we had just wrapped up a, a series on worship and uh, what that means in terms of corporate worship and private worship. We watched a video series by John Piper on that. Uh, Bob did this last year, 2015, abundant Christian, The Abundant Christian Life, Living the Abundant Christian Life. And then we rolled into the evangelism series that we just completed. And the question really then is where do you go from there? If you're building on worship and you're building on evangelism and outreach and we had the Christmas uh, play, what comes next in terms of continuing to build ourselves as a body and how we can minister the gospel to others? Well, what comes next is probably uh, either discipleship or biblical counseling. And uh, we're going to take on the, the topic of biblical counseling. It really isn't... Um, as daunting as it may sound, it's simply learning how we, as individuals in part of the Christian body, minister to other people in the Christian body with the Word of God and how to help them apply the Word of God to their daily life. We're not counseling, you're not biblical counseling unbelievers because that's evangelism or presenting the gospel to them. Biblical counseling is helping each other in the body of Christ in unity, apply the Word of God to one another's lives. And that's what we're going to be going through. Why do we want to do that? Well, one of the reasons is that we can have a stronger body as we would minister by, in God's grace to new believers, uh, to people that are coming to our church. We would all be better equipped on how to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, and how to uh, show the love of Christ to them, and how to help them with questions they may have. We also would like to establish, hopefully this year, a biblical counseling ministry where we have advertised to the local community uh, free counseling for those who would like to come. And they may see it more as free counseling, and we'll help them understand the biblical aspect of it. But that's actually been shown to be, uh, across the board, to be quite a, an outreach ministry of being able to uh, establish relationships with the community and to be able to present the gospel. Hopefully you have a handout. We're going to do things a little backward this morning. Mark Przlowski is running a, a tad late, so we're going to do our lesson this morning on this, and then Mark Przlowski will, will close us out with uh, the children's Bible story there on the topic of Gideon. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, or some means of looking up some scripture, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We won't start in this text, but this will be the text we will work the most around as we introduce this topic this morning. Uh, one of the blessings of the Christian life that I think we all, that often goes unnoticed simply because it's something that we uh, just unconsciously uh, see as reality in the Christian life is the concept of hope. The concept of hope. As Christians, we have hope. We have hope uh, in the risen Christ. We have hope that all things will work together for good to those that love God and are called, in, called according to His purpose. We have hope in, in the promises of Scripture, that his, his, his faithfulness is new every morning. His faithfulness is great. His mercies are new every morning. And you can just go on down the line, and we have hope. And that is unique. I think that sometimes we don't even realize, but that is unique to the Christian life. 
Certainly someone who's not a Christian has hope, but their hope is often based upon circumstances. It's based upon how the job is going or the family relationships are going. But if those things change, hope often changes. As the Christian, our hope is is based and rooted in something that never changed, which is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God. Did I lose this? Oh, there it goes. Why does it seem like at times there is no hope in the Christian life? Because I've heard, as we've probably all heard many times, someone say something to this effect. It is just too late. Nothing can be done. Or maybe this is a hopeless situation. I just can't go on anymore. I can't bear it. This is the worst thing that has ever happened and nothing could be worse. This is beyond something repairable. That sounds pretty horrible. It sounds like a hopeless Christian. And it almost seems like an oxymoron. Because Christians were, as Christians, we're supposed to be filled with hope. We've, we've had our life bought by a Savior who knows us perfectly. He knows everything before, current, and to come. Who died, who sent His Son to die on the cross for our behalf to rescue us from the perils of sin. And all of a sudden, now it would seem as if there is no hope. Shouldn't that be enough, all that God has done to save us from the pitfalls and plights that would rob us of this hope in this difficult world that we're in? And the answer is, yes, it should be enough. And no. Yes, the gospel is the power that saves. We looked at that all often in the evangelism series, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. That Christ is the only true Savior. That his life and death and resurrection was a game changer for us. But the answer is also no, because every single person in this room can testify to the fact that we're not done yet in our sanctification process. He's come and saved us. He's justified us before him as the lawgiver, as the judge. We are now justified in his sight, but that process of sanctification isn't done yet. And Christ is working that sanctification, but it's not complete. And though we've been rescued, we still have sin that plagues our life. And we have to exist with one another. And the sin that plagues your life then affects my life and vice versa. So there's a daily battle that we have to face. And it's it's the fact, it's the reality that we have to face sin. And that sin corrupts everything it touches. Sin lies, it cheats, it deceives, it fools, it undermines, it laughs, it taunts, it hates, it ruins, it runs, it forgets, it mocks. Sin ruins life. And that's why I would say no. Because yes, all that God has done is enough. But it's not finalized in the work of sanctification. It is finalized in the work of justification. And every one of us knows that sin corrupts. There's probably not a person in here that hasn't dealt with sin this morning. Whether you've realized it or not, you certainly probably dealt with it in the last 24 to 48 hours. Maybe you got frustrated because you hit the massive traffic jams of Fredericksburg, Texas. (laughs) Or maybe the spouse uh, or your children have had a bit of a 
misunderstanding as you prepared for church. Or maybe you have skipped time in the Word this week. Or maybe you've had a difficult conversation with a coworker or a friend. Or maybe you've struggled with doubts. Or habitual sin has reared its ugly head again. Or you told a little white lie or some small innocent little deceit thinking no one will really know or really care and yet now it weighs upon your conscience. Or you rationalize your sin, denying something that is hard to swallow or blame someone else for that sin. So really the first question that we have to wrestle with in terms of why this biblical counseling course is why does this matter? Why are we doing this course? Why should we be spending the first hour at church this morning on a class in biblical counseling? And the simple and the short answer is sin corrupts everything. Sin corrupts everything. It has ruined our world, and we need desperately, every one of us desperately need help to know how to fight for the faith. John Piper has written a book on fighting for faith. And that's what we do. We fight for faith. We fight for that hope. And we can't do that on our own. As much as we would love to say, I don't ever have to deal with anyone else's sin, and they certainly don't have to deal with my sin, that's not reality. We're created as a body, as a community of Christians that are to lean against one another and encourage one another. And in the leaning and encouraging, there's the rubbing of that sin. And so we need help. We need help to fight that sin together. And we need to be humble enough to ask for help in fighting for that faith. What is biblical counseling? I think you have that question there on your, on your handout. What is biblical counseling? Many of us have probably been in the position where someone has asked us for our counsel at one time or another, or asked us, what is your opinion on this? So a second important question that we're also going to ask is, what does it mean to give counsel to those who are struggling? And it can mean a lot of things. To give advice or to advise, to give your opinion. We don't normally think of that as counseling, but well, what do you think of this? Well, that's, that's my opinion, but that's actually counsel. To provide guidance for someone's situation. A recommendation regarding a decision or a course of conduct. Do you think I should take this job? Or do you think I should make this transaction? Or do you think I should make this decision? And the person you're asking to is giving you counsel. To speak wisely or unwisely into someone's life. To speak comfort, hope, or encouragement. Counseling is the act of giving counsel to someone. Now, if you look up, it's, it's interesting to see how definitions have evolved over time. If you look up Webster's Dictionary 1979, the 1979 version, you'll find the following definition for counseling. Professional, that's the underlying word, professional guidance of the individual using psychological methods. And notice a couple of things. Notice that they claim that counseling is only something that can be done by a professional. And... It has to be done with psychological ways of thinking or feeling or behaving. But if you look at the 1828 of Webster's, you get this definition. Two words. Instructing, admonishing. Very simple. Instructing, admonishing. And sadly, I think that the 1979 version, uh, definition of counseling by Webster's dictionary there, is often uh, that which reflects our thought of counseling. It's something done by an office, by a professional, and it's, it's something that we, 
can't do because it's really psychological and you got to get into how all the brain works to be able to make any headway on something. Interestingly enough, Webster's 1979 dictionary actually tells us that 1927 was the first known use of the modern term counseling. Before then, counseling wasn't done by a professional. It was simply a term used to define how we interact with one another. In contrast to Webster, I think this would be two, two ways to define counseling that are distinctly Christian. You have one of them. I'll give you another. Biblical counseling is the opportunity to speak into someone's life using God's wisdom and not your own. You have that on your handout. This would be another one. Just saying the same thing slightly differently. Biblical counseling is helping another person apply God's word to their daily life. It's helping another person apply God's word to their daily life. We've got to remember as Christians that James, the book of James, tells us that where does sin come from? It comes from the heart. It comes from fleshly desires. It comes from, it comes from our sin nature. So certainly helping another person think psychologically is important. We're told in Romans 12 to renew our minds. So that's important. But, it's, but trying to make the gate look pretty that's guarding all the stuff that's coming in and out, if it's all junk coming out, you can have the prettiest gate in the world. It's still going to be junk coming out. If we go to the heart of the matter, as we, as we work and apply God's word to the heart, there's a change that takes place by the power of the Holy Spirit that then as you help someone think about that situation, biblically, now they're able to apply some wise thought lines to whatever they're experiencing. But now they have a, they have a means by which to apply. They have God's word applied to that situation. So counseling is the opportunity to give advice, as we've looked at, who, for someone who asks. But it's, it's helping them to view that situation from God's perspective, from His wisdom and not my own. We certainly find that wisdom in God's Word. We realize that um, there is a great need then for all of us as believers to be very well grounded in God's Word. Even if you're, uh, you were saved last night, just beginning the process of being continually in God's Word and allowing His Word to change you. One biblical counselor put it like this, My job is not to change the person, but to introduce them to the one who can. God is the one who does the work of change. Colossians 3, Paul writes in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Scripture must be the deep well of that's that shaping our line of thinking as Christians. Hopefully you have your Bibles. If you don't and you just arrived, look in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 14. We'll read through verse 6, uh, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 2. How are we to do this? Or what is our, what, how should we be thinking as we begin this process of understanding our need to help others apply God's word to their daily life. 
And we do that by realizing that we're called to be an ambassador. Paul helps us with this. The Apostle Paul helps us with this in 2 Corinthians 5. Look with me, starting at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, or your Bible might say compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this, meaning all that has come, all of the the change from old to new, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, not counting our trespasses against us, and instead entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's talk a little bit about this. Look at verse 18 with me. What is the message of reconciliation? Just look in your Bible. What is the message of reconciliation? What? Yes, sir? Yes. Christ reconciled us to himself. And he he did not count. This is amazing. He did not count our sins against us. Verse 19, who then has this message of reconciliation been committed to? Simple answer, to us. And so Paul calls us ambassadors. So from 19 backing into 18, we are ambassadors because our calling, our work that has been given to us is to help others realize that God has reconciled himself to man through Christ. And that's what we're called to be ambassadors to do, is to take that message to the world. God has reconciled himself to us by not counting our sins against us, instead counting that sin against Christ in order that we might be reconciled with him. God is making his appeal through us. You see that in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's what we're impressing upon people. That's what we're imploring people to do. That's what we're begging people to do. Be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. Turn from that sin. Pleading with them to do that. I think at times we can often think of, well, 
if if God's the one who does the work of saving, then there's not then I don't need to do much, or I'm not going to say much. I'm just going to declare the gospel. But it's clear here in this passage. Part of declaring the gospel is to say, "Come to Christ, please," pleading with them to understand their need to be reconciled to God through Christ and the fact that God has already done that work. Look at verse 15, backing up a little bit. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Sin makes us naturally inclined to ourselves. Sin makes us naturally inclined to selfishness and idolatry. Meaning, I want what I want more than anything else. But when that work is done, when Christ comes and saves us, part of that work is not only the fact that we're saved from our sin, not only the fact that we're saved from the wrath of God, we're also changed, that we no longer live for ourselves. We're now ambassadors that live for those Him who has sent us out. And you see the point of the cross there. Christ died to deliver us. One of the aspects of his death was to deliver us from the bondage of living for ourselves. And that's what's called the ministry of reconciliation. That we would help under, people understand that. And it's that's between those two things is where biblical counseling comes in. Where we recognize that we are new creations, but we still struggle with that living for ourselves and helping one another reconcile that realizing that no you are now a new person in christ and you're now dead to yourselves you should no longer live for yourselves but now live for him who died for you and was raised again and we can forget that and so it helps when a brother or sister comes along and helps us to understand or reminds us again of our our need to do so verse 21 is one of the most clear and concise Statements about this ministry of reconciliation. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to die in our place, so that in him, those who are saved and trust in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God took a sinless Christ, perfect, and exchanged that in, for our sin and our imperfectness. We were not righteous, and He gave us His righteousness. We were sinful, and He gave us His sinlessness. Paul David Tripp, um, if you're, if you want to go deeper uh, with this study, this is a, a top five book on my library um, called "Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands" by Paul David Tripp. We studied this as men a couple of years ago, and I would really encourage anyone to pick it up and read it. Um, it's not a necessarily a I think it's not really a like a manual of how to do things. It's more of just a, of a very good read, but it really helps get deeper on some of these things. Uh, the second book you you should pick up if you want to get more into this is another top five called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones um, that really dovetails well with these two things. But Paul David Tripp in this book says this about what is an ambassador. Quote, The job of an ambassador is to represent someone or something. Everything he does and says must intentionally represent a leader who is not physically present. 
His calling is not limited to 40 hours a week to certain state events or to times of international crisis. You know, if we're thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm the ambassador to France from the United States of America, it's not limited to just when I'm on call or at state events or to times of international crisis. He is always the king's representative. He stands in the place of the king wherever he is, whatever he is doing. His relationships are not primarily driven by his own happiness. He decides to go places and do things because they will help him to faithfully represent the king. Thus, the work of an ambassador is incarnational. I'm going to explain that in a minute. His actions, character, and words embody the king who is not present. Paul says that God has called us to function as his ambassadors. Our lives do not belong to us for our own fulfillment. The primary issues is the primary issues is how can I best represent the king in this place with this particular person? That's a question we must always be asking ourselves. How can I best represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and in this place with this particular person, whether it's your two year old child or your coworker or your family member or the person you've never met? This is not a part-time calling, it is a lifestyle. When an ambassador assumes his responsibilities, his life ceases to be his own. Everything he says and does has importance because of the king he represents. Anything less is an affront to the king and a denial of the ambassadorial calling. Now he says in there, uh, I mentioned the word incarnational, and this is what he means by that. He points to the fact that much of the incarnation, meaning Christ coming to earth in flesh, taking on human flesh and living as a man, we often think of that as an event, as something that happened. But Tripp points out very well that the incarnation is also an agenda and a calling. And simply, the incarnation in its very basic form is Christ coming to earth, to help us to see the glory of the Father. And that's much of the problem today, is we cannot see God. You know, if God, which we know who is in this room dwelling with us because of Scripture, if we could see Him in all His glory, we would be like Isaiah. We would fall down in our face and cry out, Woe is me. We would, we would be a lot if not all the way um, assisted with dealing with sin in our lives. If, if I knew He was there, I could see Him in all His glory, which no one has seen the Father. And, and, and all of His holiness and His wrath and His glory, that's our problem. We can't see that. And so that's what Christ did, is He came to earth, in the flesh, that we might see, in a small way, the glory of God. And so, in an even smaller way, that is our job as well, incarnationally, as ambassadors, is to help people see the truth and the grace and the glory of Christ. We do that. That's our job. That's what he means by incarnationally. To be an ambassador means we represent God's words and actions and character to all those he has put in our life. What is God calling you in your marriage? He's calling you to be an ambassador. What is He calling you in your job? To be an ambassador. Parenting, to be an ambassador. What is He calling you to be in this church? An ambassador. Whether it's unbelievers or believers, that's the calling. 
in all relationships and in every part of life. You've got a three, three ways to summarize that ambassadorial calling there on your paper. You've got the message of the king. What does my Lord want me to communicate to this person in this situation? What truths do I know about should, re- should shape the response I have to this person? What goals should motivate how I respond to this person? That's the message of the king. And then you've got the methods of the king. How does the Lord bring change in me and in others? What methods does he use? We know he uses his word. And how did he respond to people here on earth? What responses are consistent with the goals and resources of the gospel? Some of you may have seen the funny skit by Bob Newhart on Just Stop It. And his whole point in the skit is, just stop it. Well, as much as that might be nice to actually do, that isn't reality. It doesn't work most times just to stop doing it and do something else. So just telling someone who's struggling with sin, just don't do it anymore, it doesn't fit in line with the gospel. You've got to help them understand the grace and the truth that has been given to them through the gospel and help them not just change the exterior, the, the external actions and rather go to the heart of the matter and help them understand why that exterior is now able to change and driven from a heart response. Let me close here with what relevance this course will have for everyday life and not just for the crisis. I think sometimes we often think of biblical counseling as the crisis situations, right? The marriage is going, the, the children are uh, rebelling, uh, the, something's breaking down, and we're going to sort of run to the ER and get something fixed um, or sewn up very quickly, try to stop the bleeding, as it were. And yet, that's not Although that is applicable, that's not how it often should be. And in fact, I would say that that happens because individuals aren't doing the work of encouraging one another and applying God's word to their daily life. And things just build and build and build till it explodes. And by that time, now you're running to the pastor and doing whatever you've got to do. Whereas if we can help one another, I'm not the church. You're the church. This is your work. And now I'm certainly called to assist with that. Bob's called to assist with that. Paul's called to assist with that. But that's not our job first. That's your job first. And that's called discipleship, isn't it? Here's a, uh, here's a little example here. You, you may have that a little bit on your sheet there, relevance to the daily life. Here's the example. Your teenager or your 10-year-old or your 9-year-old uh, comes in the house with a sad face, a sad look on his face, and he retreats to his room and he doesn't say a word to you, and it doesn't take a a rocket scientist to know that something is up. So how do you deal with the situation? What would you do? How would you deal with the situation? What's the first thing we should do? Pray, right. And what are we praying about? What are we praying for? What are we asking for God to do? Wisdom, discernment. Knowing what scriptures need to apply. Asking that God would help us not go after external reactions and instead go for the heart of the situation and 
asking good questions to get to that heart situation. Ma'am? No, go ahead. In humility, yes. So you might start with knowing all of that. You may start then with a few simple questions. What's wrong? Nothing. Okay, good. Glad everything's good. Or uh, I think it's a good thing to ask where if you can ask a question, it takes a little forethought. That's why you're praying. Ask them a question that is able. you can't respond with one word. They may try to respond with nothing. What happened at school today? Nothing. No, you went to school. Something happened. Why are you sulking? Um, you're looking to draw out what is going on. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But this, this might be something uh, ideally that a conversation might look like. The dad would say, hey, son, what's wrong? Nothing. Really? Nothing is wrong? Then why did you walk in the door sulking and you threw your backpack on the floor and you stomped up to your bedroom like you wanted to make sure everyone in the house knew that you were home and that you were angry? Son, I'm just annoyed at some guys at school. Now, as believers, and hopefully ones that are looking at Scripture, we should, there should be bells going off in our head. We're annoyed, we are annoyed at some guys at school. There may be some blame shifting going there. It's those guys' fault. If they hadn't done what they did, then I wouldn't have had this bad attitude. So I'm not going to say that right out of the gate. I'm going to dig a little deeper. Dad, why? What happened? There were some boys who all just got their new Air Jordans. There's the coveting. And they were making fun of me because you, meaning Dad, there's a little more blame shifting, got me the Air Gordons from Walmart. Dad, I'm so sorry, son. That's never a fun experience. So how did that make you feel when they were making fun of you? I don't know. I guess I really didn't care. Are you sure? Because it seems like we wouldn't be talking about it now if you didn't care. Did it make you sad? Yeah, I guess it made me angry too. Why? What were you angry about? It was embarrassing because other kids were around. There's a little bit of fear of man, maybe. Why does that matter what other people think? It just does. It makes everything a lot easier when people like you. Maybe a little idolatry. And we could go on and on and on. But you notice the, the father, this was the example given in, our, in, the, in the manuscript, the father isn't pointing out sin yet. He's just drawing, 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 drawing out the heart issues. He can then, as the deeper the conversation goes and more drawing, and he can begin going back with the gospel and helping that young man understand what is going on there. But then the question would be, which we'll, getting, we'll get into more of this in the, in the coming weeks, well, now that you've drawn all this out, and by then helping, we'll have a better understanding of realizing what we're drawing out, then what do you do with it? Well, then you apply God's word. And for this specific young man, you might take him to Psalm 56, that we should not fear man, but we should trust God. Or Exodus 20, verse 17, not to covet our neighbor's stuff. Or Isaiah 44, and helping him understand the ridiculous nature of idolatry. Or Proverbs 15, 3, or 27, 19, that my heart is a reflection of my countenance. And my heart is reflected in my countenance. Or First Samuel sixteen seven that the Lord cares about the heart, 
and not about the outward appearances. Now, if I just dump truck that upon my son before drawing out the heart, I'll probably create a hardness there. But you've got to draw that out and then helping them understand the gospel that applies to those things. Mrs. Brady? Yes. When I get to them, there's a brokenness. Yes. That says, Let's go to God's word and see how he can fix us. Right. As opposed to you. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay. I'm going to wrap this up here and have Mark come up here in just a second. Um, we're going to give a, a, a greater admonition to the body uh, in the coming weeks. Um, we're going to give just a preemptive uh, line of help uh, and encouragement for you all for 2016. So biblical counseling message uh, introduction is over. We're moving to the next one. Um, I just want to encourage you. I, one of the goals that the pastors of this church have made for this church in 2016 is to really grow in unity in corporate worship to be much more uh, together in corporate worship. And we've built upon that. We, we've done the worship series. We've done the evangelism training. Uh, Bob gave a great message last week. If you weren't here, listen to it online on the unity in the church from Ephesians 2. Um, and we've made some inroads in advancing um, our, our offering to the community, our church, through the outre uh, different outreaches that we've done, the play uh, flyers that we've passed out, and we really have a limited opportunity with those outreaches before then you have to do another one, uh, or you you see all the fruit that comes out of it, and now you move on. Um, but, and here's the encouragement I want to make for you all this morning, is when this is done, and Mark will have 15 minutes or so here, you're going to have 20 minutes or so to fellowship with one another, to get a little break, to get a little coffee, to get a little snack, use the restroom, whatever you need to do. But let's move as a body to worship together. Let's go sit down 10 minutes together. It does many things. It encourages those who are doing that every Sunday. And it helps. If I'm a new believer, you know, if I'm a visitor and I walk into this church, uh, last Sunday this happened, uh, and it's 11 o'clock, and there was about five people in there. And here's this family that's sitting in there. Uh, you got to be thinking, what is going on here? five people go to this church and then all of a sudden the door open and everybody comes flooding out you're thinking wow something's going on in there and I'm not part of it and there's not a great unity there so I really want to encourage us we're going to go into this more in the coming weeks when uh, we have an opportunity but encourage us to see that as a goal together I think we'll see it I think we'll see growth and encouragement with one another as well as uh, broadcast a, a, a more beautiful message of, the, of that unity to anyone that would come and visit. But also, um, if you go in there late, we plan that service to start uh, intentionally with those slides. And there's a, there's a liturgy that we go through. So if you miss the first two verses, you miss the glory of who God is and why we don't deserve that. So you're catching the tail end with no setup for why we're going to exalt Christ and respond in such a way. We sang, it is well with my soul last week as the last verse. 
But that was only so powerful because we began with Almighty God, thy seeing eye. And then, and then we went to just as I am. And, or no, it wasn't just as I am. I don't remember the other one I went to. We went, we went to another song about the fact that we don't deserve that Almighty God or seeing eye. And then we went to see the destined day arise and watch the glory of Christ. And then we responded with, it is well with my soul. So if you miss some of those things, I think you're missing a lot as the family. And you're also really missing the setup for then the preaching of the word. So let me just encourage us with that, make that 2016 goal.